Book Two, Chapters Thirteen, Fourteen, and Fifteen of Joseph Andrews. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Dennis Sayers. Joseph Andrews by Henry Fielding. Book Two, Chapter Thirteen. A dissertation concerning high people and low people, with Mrs. Slipslop's departure in no very good temper of mind, and the evil plight in which she left Adams and his company. It will doubtless seem extremely odd to many readers that Mrs. Slipslop, who had lived several years in the same house with Fanny, should, in a short separation, utterly forget her, and, indeed, the truth is that she remembered her very well, as we would not willingly, therefore, that anything should appear unnatural in this our history, we will endeavour to explain the reasons of her conduct, nor do we doubt being able to satisfy the most curious reader that Mrs. Slipslop did not in the least deviate from the common road in this behaviour and indeed had she done otherwise she must have descended below herself and would have very justly been liable to censure be it known then that the human species are divided into two sorts of people to wit high people and low people as by high people I would not be understood to mean persons literally born higher in their dimensions than the rest of the species, nor metaphorically those of exalted characters or abilities. So by low people I cannot be construed to intend the reverse. High people signify no other than people of fashion, and low people those of no fashion. Now, this word fashion hath by long use lost its original meaning, from which at present it gives us a very different idea. For I am deceived if by persons of fashion we do not generally include a conception of birth and accomplishments superior to the herd of mankind. Whereas, in reality, nothing more was originally meant by a person of fashion than a person who dressed himself in the fashion of the times, and the word really and truly satisfies no more at this day. Now, the world being thus divided into people of fashion and people of no fashion, a fierce contention arose between them, nor would those of one party to avoid suspicion, be seen publicly to speak to those of the other, though they often held a very good correspondence in private. In this contention it is difficult to say which party succeeded, for whilst the people of fashion seized several places to their own use, such as courts, assemblies, operas, balls, etc. The people of no fashion, besides one royal place, called His Majesty's Bear Garden, have been in constant possession of all hops, fairs, revels, etc. 
two places have been agreed to be divided between them, namely the church and the playhouse, where they segregate themselves from each other in a remarkable manner. For as the people of fashion exalt themselves at church over the heads of people of no fashion, so in the playhouse they abase themselves in the same degree under their feet. This distinction I have never met with any one able to account for. It is sufficient that, so far from looking on each other as brethren, in the Christian language, they seem scarce to regard each other as of the same species. This, the terms, strange persons, people one does not know, the creature, wretches, beasts, brutes, and many other appellations evidently demonstrate, which Mrs. Slipslop, having often heard her mistress use, thought she had also a right to use in her turn, and perhaps she was not mistaken, for these two parties, especially those bordering nearly on each other, to wit, the lowest of the high, and the highest of the low, often change their parties according to place and time. For those who are people of fashion in one place are often people of no fashion in another. And with regard to time, it may not be unpleasant to survey the picture of dependence like a ladder, as, for instance, early in the morning arises the postillion, or some other boy, which great families, no more than great ships, are without, and falls to brushing the clothes and cleaning the shoes of John the footman, who, being dressed himself, applies his hands to the same labours for Mr. Secondhand, the squire's gentleman. The gentleman, in the like manner, a little later in the day attends the squire. The squire is no sooner equipped than he attends the levy of my lord, which is no sooner over than my lord himself is seen at the levy of the favourite, who, after the hour of homage is at an end, appears himself to pay homage to the levy of his sovereign. Nor is there perhaps in this whole ladder of dependence any one step at a greater distance from the other than the first from the second, so that to a philosopher the question might only seem whether you would choose to be a great man at six in the morning or at two in the afternoon. And yet there are scarce two of these who do not think the least familiarity with the persons below them a condescension, and, if they were to go one step farther, a degradation. And now, reader, I hope thou wilt pardon this long digression, which seemed to me necessary to vindicate the great character of Mrs. Slipslop from what low people, who have never seen high people, might think an absurdity, but we who know them must have daily found very high persons know us in one place and not in another, to-day and not to-morrow, 
all which it is difficult to account for otherwise than I have here endeavoured, and perhaps if the gods, according to the opinion of some, made men only to laugh at them, there is no part of our behaviour which answers the end of our creation better than this. But to return to our history. Adams, who knew no more of this than the cat which sat on the table, imagining Mrs. Slipslop's memory had been much worse than it really was, followed her into the next room, crying out, Madam Slipslop, here is one of your old acquaintance. Do but see what a fine woman she has grown since she left Lady Booby's service. I think I reflect something of her, answered she, with great dignity, but I can't remember all the inferior servants in our family. She then proceeded to satisfy Adam's curiosity by telling him, when she arrived at the inn, she found a chaise ready for her, that her lady being expected very shortly in the country, she was obliged to make the utmost haste, and, in commensuration of Joseph's lameness, she had taken him with her, and, lastly, that the excessive virulence of the storm had driven them into the house where he found them after which she acquainted Adams with his having left his horse, and expressed some wonder at his having strayed so far out of his way, and at meeting him, as she said, in the company of that wench whom she feared was no better than she should be. The horse was no sooner put into Adams' head, but he was immediately driven out by this reflection on the character of Fanny. He protested. He believed there was not a chaster damsel in the universe. I heartily wish, I heartily wish, cried he, snapping his fingers, that all her betters were as good. He then proceeded to inform her of the accident of their meeting. But when he came to the circumstance of delivering her from the rape, she said, She thought him properer for the army than the clergy, that it did not become a clergyman to lay violent hands on any one, that he should have rather prayed that she might be strengthened. Adam said, He was very far from being ashamed of what he had done. And she replied, want of shame was not the characteristic of a clergyman this dialogue might have probably grown warmer had not joseph opportunely entered the room to ask leave of madame slipslop to introduce fanny but she positively refused to admit any such trollops and told him she would have been burnt before she would have suffered him to get into a chaise with her if she had once respected him of having his sluts waylaid on the road for him adding that mr adams acted a very pretty part and she did not doubt but to see him a bishop he made the best bow he could and cried out 
I thank you, madam, for that right reverend appellation, which I shall take all honest means to deserve. Very honest means, returned she, with a sneer, to bring people together. At these words, Adams took two or three strides across the room, when the coachman came to inform Mrs. Slipslop that the storm was over, and the moon shone very bright. She then sent for Joseph, who was sitting without, with his fanny, and would have had him gone with her, but he peremptorily refused to leave Fanny behind, which threw the good woman into a violent rage. She said, She would inform her lady what doings were carrying on, and did not doubt, but she would rid the parish of all such people, and concluded a long speech, full of bitterness and very hard words, with some reflections on the clergy, not decent to repeat. At last, finding Joseph unmovable, she flung herself into the chaise, casting a look at Fanny as she went, not unlike that which Cleopatra gives Octavia in the play. To say the truth, she was most disagreeably disappointed by the presence of Fanny. She had, from her first seeing Joseph at the inn, conceived hopes of something which might have been accomplished at an alehouse as well as a palace. Indeed, it is probable Mr. Adams had rescued more than Fanny from the clangor of a rape that evening. When the chaise had carried off the enraged slip-slop, Adams, Joseph, and Fanny assembled over the fire, where they had a great deal of innocent chat, pretty enough. But, as possibly it would not be very entertaining to the reader, we shall hasten to the morning, only observing that none of them went to bed that night. Adams, when he had smoked three pipes, took a comfortable nap in a great chair, and left the lovers, whose eyes were too well employed to permit any desire of shutting them, to enjoy by themselves, during some hours, an happiness which none of my readers, who have never been in love, are capable of the least conception of, though we had as many tongues as Homer desired to describe it with, and which all true lovers will represent to their own minds, without the least assistance from us. Let it suffice, then, to say that Fanny, after a thousand entreaties, at last gave up her whole soul to Joseph, and almost fainting in his arms, with a sigh infinitely softer and sweeter, too, than any Arabian breeze, she whispered to his lips, which were then close to hers, Oh, Joseph, you have won me. I will be yours for ever. Joseph, having thanked her on his knees, and embraced her with an eagerness which she now almost returned, leapt up in a rapture, and awakened the parson, earnestly begging him that he would that instant join their hands together. 
Adams rebuked him for his request, and told him he would by no means consent to anything contrary to the forms of the church, that he had no license, nor indeed would he advise him to obtain one, that the church had prescribed a form, namely the publication of bans, with which all good Christians ought to comply, and to the omission of which he attributed the many miseries which befell great folks in marriage, concluding, as many as are joined together, otherwise than G. Blank's word doth allow, are not joined together by G. Blank, neither is their matrimony lawful. Fanny agreed with the parson, saying to Joseph, with a blush, she assured him she would not consent to any such thing, and that she wondered at his offering it, in which resolution she was comforted and commended by Adams, and Joseph was obliged to wait patiently till after the third publication of the bands, which, however, he obtained the consent of Fanny, in the presence of Adams, to put in at their arrival. The sun had been now risen some hours, when Joseph, finding his leg surprisingly recovered, proposed to walk forwards, but when they were all ready to set out, an accident a little retarded them. This was no other than the reckoning, which amounted to seven shillings, no great sum if we consider the immense quantity of ale which Mr. Adams poured in. Indeed, they had no objection to the reasonableness of the bill, but many to the probability of paying it, for the fellow who had taken poor Fanny's purse had, unluckily, forgot to return it, so that the account stood thus. Mr. Adams and Company, Doctor, Seven Shillings. In Mr. Adams' pocket, Six and a half pence. In Mr. Joseph's, nothing. In Mrs. Fanny's, nothing. Balance, six shillings, five and a half pence. They stood silent some few minutes, staring at each other, when Adams whipped out on his toes and asked the hostess if there was no clergyman in that parish. She answered, there was. Is he wealthy? replied he to which she likewise answered in the affirmative. Adams then, snapping his fingers, returned overjoyed to his companions, crying out, Eureka! Eureka! which, not being understood, he told them in plain English, they need give themselves no trouble, for he had a brother in the parish who would defray the reckoning, and that he would just step to his house and fetch the money, and returned to them instantly. Chapter 14 An Interview Between Parson Adams and Parson Trulliber Parson Adams came to the house of Parson Trulliber, whom he found stripped into his waistcoat with an apron on, and a pail in his hand, just come from serving his hogs. For Mr. Trulliber was a parson on Sundays, but all the other six might more properly be called a farmer. 
he occupied a small piece of land of his own, besides which he rented a considerable deal more. His wife milked his cows, managed his dairy, and followed the markets with butter and eggs. The hogs fell chiefly to his care, which he carefully waited on at home, and attended to fairs, on which occasion he was liable to many jokes, his own size being, with much ale, rendered little inferior to that of the beasts he sold. He was indeed one of the largest men you should see, and could have acted the part of Sir John Falstaff without stuffing. Add to this that the rotundity of his belly was considerably increased by the shortness of his stature, his shadow ascending very near as far in height when he lay on his back as when he stood on his legs. His voice was loud and hoarse, and his accents extremely broad. To complete the whole, he had a stateliness in his gait, when he walked, not unlike that of a goose, only he stalked slower. Mr. Trulliber, being informed that somebody wanted to speak with him, immediately slipped off his apron and clothed himself in an old nightgown being the dress in which he always saw his company at home. His wife, who informed him of Mr. Adams' arrival, had made a small mistake, for she had told her husband she believed there was a man come for some of his hogs. This supposition made Mr. Trulliber hasten with the utmost expedition to attend his guest. He no sooner saw Adams than, not in the least doubting the cause of his errand to be what his wife had imagined, he told him he had come in very good time that he expected a dealer that afternoon, and added, they were all pure and fat and upwards of twenty score apiece. Adams answered, he believed he did not know him. Yes, yes, cried Trulliber. I have seen you often at the fair. Why, we have dealt before now, Mun, I warrant you. Yes, yes, cries he, I remember thy face very well, but won't mention a word more till you have seen them, though I have never sold thee a flitch of such bacon as is now in the style. Upon which he laid violent hands on Adams, and dragged him into the hogsty, which was, indeed, but two steps from his parlour window. They were no sooner arrived there than he cried out, Do but handle them! Step in, friend! Art welcome to handle them, whether dust by or no! At which words, opening the gate, he pushed Adams into the pigsty, insisting on it that he should handle them before he would talk one word with him. Adams, whose natural complacence was beyond anything artificial, was obliged to comply before he was suffered to explain himself, and laying hold on one of their tails, the unruly beast gave such a sudden spring that he threw poor Adams 
all along in the mire. Trulliver, instead of assisting him to get up, burst into a laughter, and, entering the sty, said to Adams, with some contempt, Why, <laughs> dost thou not know how to handle a hog? And was going to lay hold of one himself, but Adams, who thought he had carried his complacence far enough, was no sooner on his legs than he escaped out of the reach of the animals, and cried out, Nahil habio cum purcus. I am a clergyman, sir, and am not come to buy hogs. Trulliber answered, oh, He was sorry for the mistake, but that he must blame his wife, adding, She was a fool, and always committed blunders. He then desired him to walk in and clean himself, that he would only fasten up the sty and follow him. Adams desired leave to dry his greatcoat, wig, and hat by the fire, which Trulliber granted. Mrs. Trulliber would have brought him a basin of water to wash his face, but her husband bid her be quiet like a fool as she was, or she would commit more blunders, and then directed Adams to the pump. While Adams was thus employed, Trulliber, conceiving no great respect for the appearance of his guest, fastened the parlour door, and now conducted him into the kitchen, telling him he believed a cup of drink would do him no harm, and whispered his wife to draw a little of the worst ale. After a short silence, Adams said, I fancy, sir, you already perceive me to be a clergyman. Aye, aye, cries Trulliber, grinning. I perceive you have some cassock. I will not venture to tell it a whole one. Adams answered, It was indeed none of the best, but he had the misfortune to tear it about ten years ago, in passing over a stile. Mrs. Trulliber, returning with the drink, told her husband she fancied the gentleman was a traveller, and that he would be glad to eat a bit. Trulliber bid her hold her impertinent tongue, and asked her if Parsons used to travel without horses, adding, he supposed the gentleman had none by his having no boots on. Yes, sir, yes, says Adams, I have a horse, but I left him behind me. I'm glad to hear you have one, says Trulliber, for I assure you that I don't love to see clergymen on foot. It is not seemly, nor suiting the dignity of the cloth. Here Trulliber made a long oration on the dignity of the cloth, or rather gown, not much worth relating, till his wife had spread the table and set a mess of porridge on it for his breakfast. He then said to Adams, I don't know, friend, how you came to kale on me. However, as you are here, if you think proper to eat a morsel, you may. Adams accepted the invitation, and the two parsons sat down together. Mrs. Trulliber waiting behind her husband's chair, as was, it seems, her custom. Trulliber ate heartily, but scarce put anything in his mouth 
without finding fault with his wife's cookery, all which the poor woman bore patiently. Indeed, she was so absolute an admirer of her husband's greatness and importance, of which she had frequent hints from his own mouth, that she almost carried her adoration to an opinion of his infallibility. To say the truth, the parson had exercised her more ways than one, and the pious woman had so well edified by her husband's sermons that she had resolved to receive the bad things of this world together with the good. She had indeed been at first a little contentious, but he had long since got the better, partly by her love for this, partly by her fear of that, partly by her religion, partly by the respect he paid himself, and partly by that which he received from the parish. She had, in short, absolutely submitted, and now worshipped her husband, as Sarah did Abraham, calling him not Lord, but Master. Whilst they were at table, her husband gave her a fresh example of his greatness, for, as she had just delivered a cup of ale to Adams, he snatched it out of his hand, and crying out, I killed first, swallowed down the ale. Adams denied it. It was referred to the wife, who, though her conscience was on the side of Adams, durst not give it against her husband, upon which he said, No, sir, no, I should not have been so rude to have taken it from you if you had killed first. But I'd have you know I'm a better man than to suffer the best, he in the kingdom, to drink before me, in my own house, when I killed first. As soon as their breakfast was ended, Adams began in the following manner. I think, sir, it is high time to inform you of the business of my embassy. I am a traveller, and am passing this way in company with two young people, a lad and a damsel, my parishioners, towards my own cure. We stopped at a house of hospitality in the parish, where they directed me to you as having the cure. Though I am but a curate, says Trulliber, I believe I am as warm as the vicar himself, or perhaps the rector of the next parish, too. I believe I could buy them both. Sir, cries Adams, I rejoice thereat. Now, sir, my business is that we are by various accidents stripped of our money, and are not able to pay our reckoning, being seven shillings. I therefore request you to assist me with the loan of those seven shillings, and also seven shillings more, which, peradventure, I shall return to you. But if not, I am convinced you will joyfully embrace such an opportunity of laying up a treasure in a better place than any this world affords. Suppose a stranger who entered the chambers of a lawyer, being imagined a client, when the lawyer was preparing his palm for the fee, should pull out a writ against him. 
Suppose an apothecary at the door of a chariot containing some great doctor of eminent skill should, instead of directions to a patient, present him with a potion for himself. Suppose a minister should, instead of a good round sum, treat my lord, blank, blank, or sir, blank, blank, or esquire, blank, blank, with a good broomstick. Suppose a civil companion, or a lead captain, should, instead of virtue, and honour, and beauty, and parts, and admiration, thunder, vice, and infamy, and ugliness, and folly, and contempt, in his patron's ears. Suppose, when a tradesman first carries in his bill, the man of fashion should pay it. Or suppose, if he did so, the tradesman should abate what he had overcharged on the supposition of waiting. In short, suppose what you will, you never can nor will suppose anything equal to the astonishment which seized on Trulliber as soon as Adams had ended his speech. A while he rolled his eyes in silence, sometimes surveying Adams, then his wife, then casting them on the ground, then lifting them up to heaven. At last he burst forth in the following accents. Sir, I believe I know where to lay up my little treasure, as well as another. I thank G. Blank. If I am not so warm as some, I am content. That is a blessing greater than riches, and he to whom that is given need ask no more. To be content with a little is greater than to possess the world, which a man may possess without being so. Lay up my treasure. What matters where a man's treasure is, whose heart is in the scriptures? That is the treasure of a Christian. At these words, the water ran from Adam's eyes, and catching Trulliber by the hand in a rapture, Brother, says he, heavens bless the accident by which I came to see you. I would have walked many a mile to have communed with you, and believe me, I will shortly pay you a second visit. But my friends, I fancy, by this time wonder at my stay. So let me have the money immediately. Trulliber then put on a stern look and cried out, Thou dost not intend to rob me? At which the wife, bursting into tears, fell on her knees and roared out, Oh, dear sir, for heaven's sake, don't rob my master. We are but poor people. Get up, for a fool as thou art, and go about thy business, said Trulliber. Dost think the man will venture his life? He is a beggar, and no robber. Very true, indeed, answered Adams. I wish with all my heart the tithing man was here, cries Trulliber. I would have thee punished as a vagabond for thy impudence. Fourteen shillings, indeed, I won't give thee a farthing. I believe thou art no more a clergyman than the woman there, pointing to his wife. But if thou art, 
dost deserve to have thy gown stripped over thy shoulders for running about the country in such a manner i forgive your suspicions says adams but suppose i am not a clergyman i am nevertheless thy brother and thou as a christian much more as a clergyman art obliged to relieve my distress dost preach to me replied trulliber dost pretend to instruct me in my duty if hacks a good story cries mrs trulliber to preach to my master silence woman cries trulliber i would have thee know friend addressing himself to adams i shall not learn my duty from such as thee i know what charity is better than to give to vagabonds besides if we were inclined the poor's rate obliges us to give so much charity cries the wife thou art a fool poor's reate hold thy nonsense answered trulliber and then turning to adams he told him he would give him nothing i am sorry answered adams that you do know what charity is since you practice it no better i must tell you if you trust to your knowledge for your justification you will find yourself deceived though you should add faith to it without good works fellow cries trulliber dost thou speak against faith in my house get out of my doors i will no longer remain under the same roof with a wretch who speaks wantonly of faith and the scriptures name not the scriptures says adams how not name the scriptures do you disbelieve the scriptures cries trulliber no but you do answered adams if i may reason from your practice for their commands are so explicit and their rewards and punishments so immense that it is impossible a man should steadfastly believe without obeying now there is no command more express no duty more frequently enjoined than charity whoever therefore is void of charity i make no scruple of pronouncing that he is no christian i would not advise thee says trulliber to say that i am no christian i won't take it of you for i believe i am as good a man as thyself and though indeed though he was now rather too corpulent for athletic exercises he had in his youth been one of the best boxers and cudgel players in the county his wife seeing him clinch his fist interposed and begged him not to fight but show himself a true christian and take the law of him as nothing could provoke adams to strike but an absolute assault on himself or his friend he smiled at the angry look and gestures of trulliber and telling him he was sorry to see such men in orders departed without further ceremony chapter fifteen an adventure the consequence of a new instance which parson adams gave of his forgetfulness when he came back to the inn 
he found Joseph and Fanny sitting together. They were so far from thinking his absence long, as he had feared they would, that they never once missed, or thought of him. Indeed, I have been often assured by both that they spent these hours in a most delightful conversation, but as I never could prevail on either to relate it, so I cannot communicate it to the reader. Adams acquainted the lovers with the ill success of his enterprise. They were all greatly confounded, none being able to propose any method of departing, till Joseph at last advised calling in the hostess and desiring her to trust them, which Fanny said she despaired of her doing, as she was one of the sourest-faced women she had ever beheld. But she was agreeably disappointed, for the hostess was no sooner asked the question than she readily agreed, and, with a curtsy and smile, wished them a good journey. However, lest Fanny's skill in physiognomy should be called in question, we will venture to assign one reason which might probably incline her to this confidence and good humour. When Adams said he was going to visit his brother, he had unwittingly imposed on Joseph and Fanny, who both believed he had meant his natural brother, and not his brother in divinity, and had so informed the hostess on her inquiry after him. Now Mr. Trulliber had, by his professions of piety, by his gravity, austerity, reserve, and the opinion of his great wealth, so great an authority in his parish, that they all lived in the utmost fear and apprehension of him. It was, therefore, no wonder that the hostess, who knew it was in his option, whether she should ever sell another mug of drink, did not dare to affront his supposed brother by denying him credit. They were now just on their departure, when Adams recollected he had left his greatcoat and hat at Mr. Trulliber's. As he was not desirous of renewing his visit, the hostess herself, having no servant at home, offered to fetch it. This was an unfortunate expedient, for the hostess was soon undeceived in the opinion she had entertained of Adams, whom Trulliber abused in the grossest terms especially when he heard he had had the assurance to pretend to be his near relation. At her return, therefore, she entirely changed her note. She said, Folks might be ashamed of travelling about, and pretending to be what they are not. The taxes were high, and for her part she was obliged to pay for what she had. She could not, therefore, possibly nor would she trust anybody, no, not her own father. That money was never scarcer, and she wanted to make up a sum. That she expected, therefore, they should pay their reckoning before they left the house. Adams was now greatly perplexed, but as he knew that he could easily have borrowed such a sum in his own parish, and as he knew he would have lent it himself to any mortal in distress, 
so he took fresh courage, and sallied out all round the parish, but to no purpose. He returned as penniless as he went, groaning and lamenting that it was possible in a country professing Christianity for a wretch to starve in the midst of his fellow-creatures who abounded. Whilst he was gone, the hostess, who stayed as a sort of guard with Joseph and Fanny, entertained them with the goodness of Parson Trulliber, and, indeed, he had not only a very good character as to other qualities in the neighbourhood, but was reputed a man of great charity, for though he never gave a farthing, he had always that word in his mouth. Adams was no sooner returned the second time than the storm grew exceedingly high, the hostess declaring, among other things, that if they offered to stir without paying her, she would soon overtake them with a warrant. Plato and Aristotle, or somebody else, hath said that when the most exquisite cunning fails, chance often hits the mark, and that by means the least expected. Virgil expresses this very boldly. Terne quod optante divum promittere nemo audrit, volvenda dies en, atulit ultro. I would quote more great men, if I could, but my memory not permitting me, I will proceed to exemplify these observations by the following instance. There chanced, for Adams had not cunning enough to contrive it, to be at that time in the alehouse a fellow who had been formerly a drummer in an Irish regiment, and now travelled across the country as a peddler. This man, having attentively listened to the discourse of the hostess, at last took Adams aside, and asked him what the sum was for which they were detained. As soon as he was informed, he sighed, and said, He was sorry it was so much, for that he had no more than six shillings and sixpence, in his pocket, which he would lend them with all his heart. Adams gave a caper, and cried out, It would do, for that he had sixpence himself. And thus these poor people, who could not engage the compassion of riches and piety, were at length delivered out of their distress by the charity of a poor peddler. I shall refer it to my reader to make what observations he pleases on this incident. It is sufficient for me to inform him that, after Adams and his companions had returned him a thousand thanks, and told him where he might call to be repaid, they all sallied out of the house without any compliments from their hostess, or indeed without paying her any. Adams, declaring he would take particular care never to call there again, and she on her side assuring them she wanted no such guests. End of Book 2, Chapters 13, 14, and 15 Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California, for LibriVox.